Mifepristone is a tiny pill with a big reach. I read things about medication abortion all the time, and I think, oh, wow, has no one ever looked at what these pills really are? So they're the size of normal pills. Mifepristone is taken in one dose. It's one pill. Rachel Ray Boucher is the dean of the Temple University Beasley School of Law. She spent a lot of time explaining what mifepristone is and how medication abortions work. Medication abortions take place during the first 11 weeks of pregnancy, and they involve two drugs. One of those drugs is mifepristone. So in 2020, Guttmacher Institute found that over 50% of people who end pregnancies in the U.S. use medication abortion. And that number has been going up over the last 20 years since it was approved in 2000. There's reason to think it's going up much more dramatically now. But that could be coming to a sudden halt soon. Last week, a federal judge in Texas refuted the Food and Drug Administration's approval of mifepristone, issuing an injunction that would suspend that approval nationwide, even in states where abortion isn't banned. That's despite the fact that more than 100 studies over 30 years say the drug is safe. The FDA has evaluated it multiple times. It even approved a generic version as recently as 2019. It's whiplash to read the opinion because you think, you know, this opinion is so certain of mifepristone's dangerousness and riskiness when that's just not what the evidence says. This week, the Justice Department appealed the ruling and asked the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to put the order on hold as the appeal moves through the courts. So far, the Fifth Circuit hasn't responded. And that means that tomorrow, Friday, FDA approval for mifepristone could be suspended for the first time in 23 years. It's stunning for people who study abortion law and reproductive health, uh, but it's also stunning for people who study health care and food and drug law. Congress entrusts an agency to be the expert and rely on evidence. And that agency does so within its statutory authority, but then is told it's wrong, and the evidence it reviewed and relied on is wrong through the decision of one court, you know, without expertise in food and drug law, um, then where, where do you draw the line of what drugs are subject to challenge and what drugs are not. Today on the show, the future of abortion pills and what it means for our ability to approve any drug, anywhere. I'm Mary C. Curtis, in for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. 
See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. This ruling came from a judge, Matthew Kismarek. What was his reasoning for taking such a huge step on mifepristone? So his argument is that the FDA acted improperly because it misinterpreted a piece of the statute called subpart H, a statute that set out the process for accelerated review of drugs. He mischaracterizes in in some ways what subpart H was really intended to do. And he argues that that process under that statute uh, was should have only been used to approve drugs that treat illnesses and that pregnancy is not an illness. Now, that has a lot of common sense value. Most people don't think of pregnancy as an illness, but the FDA for a very long time has thought about any number of conditions as illnesses. Essentially, what the FDA did was use the regulatory process it had at its disposal to regulate mifepristone, and the reason it used that process was to regulate it more closely than other drugs. (laughs) So what's interesting about the opinion is that it hinges on this idea that the FDA misinterpreted how to apply this approval process and uh, implying that it did so hastily or without regard to the evidence. But, you know, I think there's really hard to refute evidence that the FDA took a, a long time to approve the drug that it applied a process so that it could restrict the drug, frankly, in ways that are much more characteristic of drugs with much more risk. As you said, the FDA, rather than being careless, you're saying they were pretty intentional. Uh, But yet his 
decision, it had language that sounded like it was from the anti-abortion movement. Can you give me some examples? Um, you know, routinely refers to a fetus or potential life as an unborn human, people who provide abortion as abortionist, references abortion as a eugenic project, and then I think generally um, equating abortion with murder, equating abortion with depression, regret, and exploitation of what he says routinely women and girls. The plaintiffs who brought this case actually are Tennessee-based, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine. Could you talk a little bit about this group? And if they're from Tennessee, why is this case in front of a Texas federal judge? So I think that this group really formed to take this kind of case. The reason they're in front of the Texas court seems to be that they thought they would find a sympathetic audience. I think Kaczmarek has a track record that's pretty well known some notable judgments that he's had already from the bench suggest that he is open to arguments around judicial intervention and, uh, and judicial action around certain issues. Well, some people have referred to that as forum shopping or judge shopping. What does that mean? So forum shopping is essentially which plaintiffs can do, can file in the court of their choosing. The plaintiffs have that right. And form shopping is filing in a court where you think uh, there is a track record by precedent, by cases decided, that would be favorable to the claims that you're pressing. You know, there's been a lot of debate around a district court in Texas in which it seemed very friendly to people who were filing to claim patent infringement. Um, so much so that it was becoming a kind of patent hub for the country. Um, and that has, you know, elicited a lot of comments about and a lot of commentary on the fairness of that. Um, and what does it mean for a court to be kind of a funnel for a certain area of law because of the perception of litigants that um, that is going to be the best forum in which to file? Well, let's go beyond Texas. There are two rulings about Mifepristone and its legality floating around right now. On the same day as the judge ruled against the drug in Texas, a federal judge in Washington state ruled differently. Can you talk about that ruling? So the Washington court, um, a federal district court with the same powers as a Texas court, granted in part the petition of 18 attorneys general that asked the court to essentially order the FDA to keep mifepristone on the market. So it's a preliminary injunction against the FDA from removing um, mifepristone's approval. Do we know which takes precedence? Do we know at all? They have equal power. Um, mm. One does not trump the other. They are you know, two similarly situated federal district judges. And so that, I think, is why we'll see this case um, probably go before the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court often weighs in when there are two federal courts that disagree. Well, since it seems that we might definitely go to the Supreme Court, do you have any thoughts on how this particular Supreme Court might rule in this particular case? You know, I 
this is a really different case than, for instance, the Dobbs case, which overturned Roe and Casey, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. That was about the nature and interpretation of the 14th Amendment and if it included this a pre-viability right to abortion, which the court said it did not. And that's why we're here, is that it's now a matter of state law about what happens to abortion regulation. This is really different. At the heart of this case is a question about federal agency power. One court deferring to an agency because of its expertise and the overwhelming evidence about a drug. Another court refusing to defer to an agency's expertise and issuing its own uh, judgment about whether or not a drug is safe. And so that is, a, that is a question about abortion, but it's also a question about the nature of agency power and the deference agency expertise should be given. We've also seen a response from the pharmaceutical industry itself. On Monday, senior executives from more than 250 companies including ones people might know, like Pfizer and Biogen, sent a letter condemning the ruling, saying that it, quote, set a precedent for diminishing the FDA's authority over drug approvals, and in so doing, creates uncertainty for the entire biopharma industry. What does that mean? It means that, you know, pharmaceutical companies are rightly concerned about this judgment because they spend millions and millions and millions of dollars Uh, researching and developing drugs to ensure that they're safe, to go through the FDA process, um, to apply with the rigors of that process. And if a court can, 23 years later, say that none of that matters and the drug's not approved, it is going to upend the incentives and disincentives of research and development for pharmaceutical companies. Um, Why would anyone invest all that time and money if they believe a judge in Texas can lift approval of the drugs they've invested in some decades later. And in a statement Friday evening, President Biden said, if this ruling were to stand, there will be virtually no prescription approved by the FDA that would be safe from these kinds of political ideological attacks. Is this true? One way to think about the decision is it's about medication abortion, and that's what it's about. But that's not how law works. This is a precedent that if it stands, other courts could cite to uh, remove approval from another drug, uh, you know, with similar competing evidence of that drug's safety or efficacy or harms to the public. So that statement isn't hyperbole. I'm not sure it is. After the break, what the FDA could do next. Regardless of whether the order is ultimately overturned, there are a few different options for both the FDA and the future of medication abortion. Option one, the FDA uses something called enforcement discretion. The court did not order the FDA to do something. And the court, you know, 
cannot order, I think, the FDA to do something that just lifts approval without telling the FDA it has to withdraw approval from the drug or suspend it. Even if the order goes into effect and Mifepristone's approval is temporarily suspended, um, there's still enforcement discretion, and the FDA can choose whether or not it enforces action against any manufacturer or distributor. How would that work? What are some examples of products that the FDA has decided not to prioritize in its enforcement? So uh, the one example would be infant formula. Uh, while there's been you know, approval pending or approval that hasn't been set, the FDA has allowed infant formula to be sold and used uh, because of its assessment that the product is safe. Um, and then there's just numerous examples about, you know, the vitamins, supplements that we buy all the time that are not approved by the FDA necessarily, uh, but are sold and consumed because there's very little safety risk. Well, there's been a lot of publicity here and everybody's been paying attention to it. What would the FDA have to do to reassure all the manufacturers and distributors that they can still offer Mifeprista? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, you know, I don't know how that goes. Um, the FDA could obviously issue a statement that it's going to apply its enforcement discretion. Um, but the FDA could, you know, communicate with Danco and GenBioPro. The manufacturers could communicate directly with the distributor um, that, you know, about its intention and how it's interpreting the order. Um, the FDA could also do and say nothing. In other words, the FDA complies with the order, but it doesn't crack down on distributors or manufacturers. That's option one. Option two, the FDA ignores the order completely. This move has been floated by a few politicians, including Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Republican Representative Nancy Mace. So there's been a lot of conversation about the FDA ignoring the order. The FDA does not have to ignore any order. The FDA can comply with the order, but still use its statutory powers to grant enforcement discretion. Um, I actually think it's dangerous to suggest that the agency just ignore a court order, even if that court order is crazy. <laughs> because the FDA doesn't need to do that. Uh, the FDA can vigorously defend its authority in litigation and at the same time exercise enforcement discretion. There's one more option. If the FDA cracks down, or if distributors and manufacturers stop producing mifepristone. Medication abortion involves two drugs. First, you take mifepristone, which blocks a hormone necessary for pregnancy. Then you take misoprostol, which causes contractions. Misoprostol alone is just as safe as mifepristone, but it leads to more side effects, including longer periods of bleeding, nausea, and cramping. It's been approved by the FDA, but only to treat ulcers, and it has fewer restrictions on it than mifepristone. I think there are a lot of clinicians in the country that are ready to switch to misoprostol only, which is the second drug in a medication abortion. That can also terminate a pregnancy effectively uh, in the first trimester. You don't need mifepristone at all. In fact, lots of countries across the world use misoprostol only. I think we might see a turn to that, which would be 
really interesting because misoprostol is not regulated by the FDA in any way like mifepristone. It is prescribed with mifepristone, and that's been the gold standard of medication abortion. Um, you know, to be clear, misoprostol is effective and safe early in pregnancy, but it's not quite as effective as the two-drug regimen. The irony is that if clinicians switch to misoprostol only, medication abortion, because of this judgment, it might be, become more available because there are no restrictions on misoprostol. Any provider within their medical expertise or practice can prescribe misoprostol. Mifepristone can only be prescribed by certified providers. Um, there are not the same informed consent forms, a patient agreement form. Um, that, I think, is an interesting consequence, potential consequence. Do you have any thoughts on what should the FDA's next move be? You know, I, I worry that a statement by the FDA about exercising its enforcement discretion will be interpreted and taken up as, oh, the FDA is ignoring the law. And that's, I think, a, something that the FDA would be worried about, people misinterpreting its intent. But, you know, I think the FDA, if it could clearly communicate uh, the, the nature of this power and its, its ability to apply it and the effects of doing so, those reassurances could be helpful. One issue I see with the strategy you laid out is that pharmaceutical companies and corporations in general are very risk averse. Have you considered that companies are too worried about legal challenges and all the publicity this has gotten to continue the status quo with Mifepristone? Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, and there's reasons to to be risk averse because companies like providers are worried about being targeted by anti-abortion um, groups who, you know, would seek to sue or bring claims against them. Um, so I think that even with an announcement that the FDA is not going to pursue actions against distributors or manufacturers, there's reason to think that some companies will say, we want the uh, approval of the FDA. We, we don't want to be on the wrong side of an approval process. Uh, we are risk averse. Um, I, I certainly think that's a possibility. This drug, mifepristone, has been on the market for more than two decades, as we talked about. And this is the first time a judge has ever invalidated approval of a drug that's been on the market for so long with such a track record. What could this mean for the future of the FDA's authority in the United States? Certainly for the FDA, it's a case in which a court uh, could say that the FDA's 20-year reliance on evidence and studies and research and one of the most studied drugs on the planet <laughs> um, is just wrong uh, and based on that court's own evidence. And that, that, that really does undermine the FDA. What about the future of medication abortion itself? It is part and parcel of the attacks that we're going to see year after year uh, in this country. I think the ground zero of the abortion war that's to come, that's here, is about medication abortion. Thank you, Rachel Ray Boucher, for coming on What Next. 
uh, thank you for having me. Rachel Reboucher is the dean of the Temple University Beasley School of Law. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting help from Laura Spencer. We're led by Alicia Montgomery, with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist at Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. Find me on Twitter. I'm at mcurtisnc3. I'm handing things off to Lizzie O'Leary and the What Next TBD crew. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.